Now, it's been several weeks since we've been in our study in the book of Mark, and so whenever we take kind of a little bit of break from one of our book studies, it's always important that we're reminded where we left off. And the last, that, the last time we were in the book of Mark was in the beginning of Mark chapter 6, and there we saw Jesus sending his disciples out on a mission trip, their first mission trip. Jesus had been, been pouring into his disciples. He'd been mentoring them, teaching them. But he had not been teaching them, first and foremost, merely for their benefit, but for the benefit of everyone. He was teaching them so that they wouldn't hoard his truth, but they would go out and proclaim his truth to others. So in the beginning of chapter 6, we see them going out. And then later in chapter 6, in verse 30, we see them coming back again. Now, in the middle of these two sections, Mark inserts another story. And it's the story of John the Baptist. The last we heard of John the Baptist was all the way back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. There we found that it was at the time when he was being arrested for that first time. And if you remember, his arrest and him kind of getting out of the ministry because he's in prison really kind of marked the beginning of the growth of Jesus' influence and ministry. So John's uh, ministry was the precursor to Jesus' greater ministry. This is what Mark meant when he said that he must increase and that Jesus, uh, he must decrease as Jesus increases. Well, now when we come to chapter 6, we're going to see how it is that he ended up in jail, and, but we're also going to see the story about how he ended up dying, how his life was taken from him. And so what's interesting is, is just as Mark's ministry really foreshadowed Jesus' greater ministry, in the same exact way, we're going to see that Mark's, that Mark's death, or excuse me, John's death here in the scripture passages are really going to foreshadow the coming death of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of similarities between the death of John and the death of Jesus, especially the fact that both of their lives were taken by basically a political dictator both of them vacillating over whether they should kill both uh, John or, or kill Jesus. Of course, one was Herod and the other was Pilate. But both of them, because of the pressure of the crowds, ended up killing both John and, of course, Jesus. But I'm giving you all that background so that you understand why I believe that Mark has placed this here. It's a foreshadowing of the coming death of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know that I think there's more to it than that. I think that the reason Mark records this is because he wants to teach you and I uh, something about what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, it's the new year. And we, if you call yourself a believer, claim to know Christ as Lord and Savior, then we are all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, right? And so this year, what a great thing. I know you're all kind of making, you know, all kinds of plans of what you're going to do the new year. Some some of you are going to get in shape, right? Usually lasts until... You know, the end of January, uh, you know, some of you are going to do this better, spend less money or eat better, whatever it is. But what a better place and time to be able to determine in our hearts that, God, this year is going to be for you. I'm going to live this for you, Jesus. I'm going to be who you called me to be by your grace, by your mercy. But, God, I want to take my walk with you ever more seriously than ever before. Here it is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the story, as we always do, very carefully And then what we're going to do is we're going to see some people who are clearly not disciples of Jesus Christ. But the scary thing is, is some of them remind me of myself. 
And I think they're going to remind you of yourself. Sometimes possibly a believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to see a bunch of folks who are clearly not disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see one man who is clearly a wonderful, sold-out disciple of Jesus Christ. And so let's track through this together, work through this together. Our story really begins there in verse 14. And it begins by the mention of the name of King Herod. Now there are five ruling Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. The very first was Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? He was the one that was in, in, in charge, large and in charge during the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, he was not Herod the Great because he was a great man, because he was morally great, because he was not. He was a baby killer. He was, he was scared that this new king was going to raise up and take his throne, so he just wanted to kill as many as he could. But he was called great because of all that he had accomplished, all that he had built, all of his palaces. And so he was Herod the Great. Well, Herod the Great had 10 wives. And those wives, of course, had many children, boys and girls. And so when Herod the Great dies, uh, he leaves behind his kingdom. It's divided up into four different parts, leaving it to four of his sons. So the second Herod that we read about in the scriptures here in the book of Mark is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod, and he is given one-fourth of the kingdom. In fact, he's not really technically a king. Herod Antipas isn't, but he would demand that people would call him that. He wanted to be known as a king, but technically he was a tetrarch. A tetrarch uh, literally means a ruler of a fourth part. So we didn't have the whole kingdom. He had a fourth of the kingdom, but nonetheless, he was very influential and had a great amount of power. Now, during his reign, during this time, what we find is that Herod, verse 14 says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become great. Now, what is it? What is the it that he heard? Well, um, I don't think it's that he heard of Jesus for the very first time. I'm sure by this time he has heard. Remember, these guys are afraid of their own shadow. They're always afraid that there's going to be an uprising and somebody's going to raise up and fight against them. So they're always scared that these things are going to happen. So I'm sure that he's heard about Jesus, sure that he heard about his influence. But I think when it says that he heard of it, I think in context that it's referring to they heard about Jesus sending out his disciples to proselytize in a larger area. And so this is going to make him more nervous. Why is he doing this? Just Jesus is getting more influence. And so I believe that this is kind of what's happening. Well, apparently, during this time, a lot of people have heard about Jesus, and they are beginning to make up their minds who this Jesus is. And the, the general consensus is that he's a prophet. The disagreement is they're just not quite sure who this prophet is. And so what the Bible, so, so the Bible teaches us, there were some varied ideas. Some said that he was John the Baptist and he had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So some of them believe that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, which is interesting because we never read about John the Baptist ever doing any miracles, performing any miracles. Uh, but they thought so highly of John. They thought if this man could do these great things, he must be John the Baptist come back to life. Others believe that he was possibly Elijah, verse 15. But others said he is Elijah. Where do they get that? Well, from the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. There Malachi says that before the Messiah comes, there will be a forerunner and he will be Elijah. But later in the book of Matthew and Luke, Jesus describes that it's not actually going to be Elijah, that it was referring to the forerunner who was John the Baptist himself. Here's a third view of Jesus during that time. Some believed he was a prophet, but neither did they believe he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Nor did they believe he was Elijah, but they thought that he was another Old Testament prophet. He says, and he said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So they thought, hey, maybe he's more like Elijah. 
or maybe he's more like Jeremiah, or maybe even like Moses. And this brings us to our first point concerning discipleship, and it's this. A true disciple does not simply have high views of Jesus. He submits to Jesus. See, during Jesus, Jesus is a popular guy, and why shouldn't he be? I mean, everybody likes Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is healing people. He's causing the lame to walk. He's causing the blind to see. He's, he's, he's healing and he's cleansing uh, the, um, uh, 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 the, the lepers. He's raising people from the dead. Remember, this isn't just impacting those who are being healed. It's impacting their whole families. Their families are being able to come back together. There's lepers that had to be out and away are now being able to come and fellowship within their family again. He is a popular guy. So people compliment him. He's doing great work. He's doing good things. And they give him some of the highest compliments that you possibly can. He is a prophet. He's so great, he must be John the Baptist coming back. He's got to be Isaiah. He's got to be Jeremiah. He's got to be Elijah. So these are all wonderful things, but here's the bottom line. These people saying this are not true disciples of Jesus Christ. They say wonderful things about Jesus. They claim wonderful things about Jesus. But guess what? They don't know Jesus. Because none of them have become true disciples. None of them are learning Jesus' teaching. None of them are submitting themselves to his teaching. None of them are trying to go and take his teaching and be able to spread it to other places. Now, folks, this is important for us who live in Nassau County. Because of the context in which we live, we have a lot of people just like this. You know, not most of the people that you work with are not completely anti-Jesus, right? And what I mean by that is this is even though they don't know it, their hearts might be against Jesus, verbally, they're not against Jesus. They kind of like Jesus, right? I mean, you talk about Jesus, and in and, and some of them, there's always one, you know, where you work. They don't want to hear it. They think you talk about Jesus too much. Stop talking about it. It's not right for the workplace, and they really stick it to you. But the majority of the people who are clearly not believers are pretty nice, aren't they? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, hey, they'll even talk to you. Hey, want to show you a picture? Look at the nativity scene we, we showed up. Like, that's impressive, right? Just, just to show you that, hey, I believe in Jesus too. And they'll sit back and go, man, I remember growing up. I remember the stories about Jesus and all the other wonderful things he does. And you ever, they always mention the one miracle that they always remember. Which one is it? Right? Jesus turning the water into wine. Right? Because you've heard that before. Well, Jesus turned water into wine. Toddy for my body, right? I mean, they, they like that. They know Jesus. They're nice. But here's the truth of the matter is, they're clearly not disciples of Jesus Christ. You invite them into a local fellowship to be able to pray and to learn, to hear God's word. There's just no interest in it. There's no interest to live their life in the subjection to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's no desire in them whatsoever to be able to share the gospel at all. And guess what? Some of those folks are not only there, some of those folks are here today. They're here today. And what I would say to you this morning is this, is we need to apply some of this to ourselves in the fact that, that we, I, I find, let me just be completely transparent with you. There are times when I speak high things of Jesus when my heart is not right with Jesus. There are times that I'm around Christians that I will say lofty things of Jesus when I know in my heart that there is a sin that I might be struggling with even at that moment and understand that the words of my mouth are not really matching up with the intent of my heart. You look at me as though you're stunned. I'd probably be stunned if I knew what you were thinking as well. And so what I would say is we need to be people this year who certainly share the truth 
of, of God. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been sharing that quite a bit over the last few weeks. We need to, but, but in order to share it, we must know it. I say this almost every year, many times. I know some of you are sick and tired of it. When will you become a student of the word? When will you not just hear the word that I preach, when will you be a student of the word of each week, opening up the master's words and studying it for yourself, toiling over it yourself? One of the major things we do at Celebration is disciple people. Is to take people one-on-one and teach them over a period of 20 to 25 weeks and teach them literally how to study the Word of God. And everyone that we do that, every week, they have to, we have to sign them off. Did you spend every day in the Word of God studying the Word of God? We must be in the Word of God. Why? Let me tell you, I am concerned for where our country is. I'm concerned where it is. You, maybe you're not. That's okay. I'm very concerned where it's going. Sometimes it gets me a little bit down, but it's all written right there in the Word of God. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you what I'm far more concerned of. I'm far more concerned that God's people aren't prepared. Do you know what the greatest religion is in America? The fastest growing religion? No religion. No religion. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to believe in anything. You and I are the light of the world. We must tell them the answers that they're looking for. And you can't say, hey, let me call my pastor... You have to get a grip of the doctrines, the historical doctrines and teaching of the Word of God so that you could sit there and say, this is what God says. We must do it. So we've got to be students. But guess what else we have to do? Speak it. Speak it with grace and love. Don't be obnoxious. Not turn or burn. Okay, whatever. That's got to be in there in the gospel. We know that. But what do we have to do? Man, live it. Live it. Let what your words are saying match up to your life. And there's for me, listen, I would be lying to you if I did not want to be a great preacher of God because it's what he's called me to do, not for my glory, for his glory. But let me tell you what a bummer it would be at my funeral of folks that are sitting there going, dude, he was a great preacher. And if they did not say he was a, he was a good preacher, but he lived the message out far greater than he ever preached. And what I'm saying is that it should be the intent of every disciple's heart. God, let me say it. Let me say it well. The only way to do it is to study it, become a student of God's word. And here's the deal. Submit to it fully and completely to God and then share it. That's where we need to be. Not these people that just say lofty things of Jesus. Not to just come and praise and say, sing lofty things to Jesus. But be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's a second thing that we'll see in just a minute. You notice there in verse 16, it says, but when Herod heard of it, oh, excuse me, um, he says, uh, yeah, it says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So he comes to his own conclusion who Jesus is. He thinks he's a prophet as well, and he takes A. He thinks that he is John the Baptist raised from the dead, and he comes to this conclusion basically by a runaway imagination fueled by a guilty conscience. His mind is just going crazy because he feels guilty, and John sees fit to letting us know why he felt so guilty. He says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John, and he bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So here we see how he ended up in prison. See, the problem really began with Herod Antipas himself. 
He was married to uh, the daughter of Aratus, the king of the, uh, of the Nabataean Arabs. And he one day takes his wife, and they want to go visit his half-brother, you know, on vacation. Go see Herod Philip, and as they're there, he really finds Philip's wife, Herodias, attractive. And he's attracted to her. And so he's like, hey, you know, I think I married the wrong woman. And she says, well, I think I married the wrong man. And we're like, this is a match made in heaven. Let's go ahead and get rid of our wives and get together. And so they do. And so the Bible calls that adultery. So they're guilty of the sin of adultery. But they're not only guilty of the sin of adultery, they are also guilty of the sin of incest. Because it, it, it just so happens that Herodias is, is, is the, uh, the half-niece of good old um, Herod Antipas. So it's uncle and niece liking each other, being attractive, leaving their spouse and coming and marrying one another. Nothing speaks love like uh, uncle and aunt, or uncle and niece, right, coming together. And this is what's happening here. Now, it's gross, it's disgusting, it's all sin. And so what does John the Baptist do? Well, he's down by the river going, Hey, Herod, it's not right for you to have your brother Philip's wife. Right? Now, this does not bode well with Herod, but it certainly doesn't bode well with his wife. And I don't know about you, my wife is awesome. I mean, awesome. But when, she, when, when something kind of gets in the bonnet, she doesn't like to, sh- it doesn't shake well, right? I mean, she got, she's, she's focused on it. Let me, let me explain. Here, all right, Herodias does not like John the Baptist. Here's why. Because he keeps saying that Herod is an adulterer. Well, guess what? He's got to be committing adultery with somebody. Who is it? It's with her. So every time he mentions it, it just drives her crazy. So she wears him out. She wears him. I know none of the ladies that do this with their husbands here. I, I know that. Only lost people do. I know you don't. But they come to their spouse and they go, hey, I don't like the guy. Do something about him. Do something about him. I don't want to do something about him. Do something about him. I mean, Joseph's going to tell you to do something about him. Right? And so, again, nobody here. And so finally, what does he do to be able to appease his wife? He takes him. He puts him in jail. But things get worse. Because now it's not like they just have to hear from him. At least they could close the blinds and shut him out. Now he's inside the palace. Now he's down in the dungeon. And so he's sitting there going, oh, by the way, before you go to sleep, it's not right for you to have Philip's wife. And so every once in a while, we'll find this out in just a minute or two, Herod also has this kind of strange infatuation, infatuation with John, and he'll call him before him, and he'll say, hey, John, I want you to come and speak, and they'll talk politics, they'll talk sports, they'll talk about whatever it is, the news of the day. And before he leaves, he says the same thing every day. Hey, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife, Philip's wife. It's not right for you. It's just over and over again. And this eats Herodias up. He keeps saying it over and over again. And every time he says it, it just strikes at her conscience. And she knows, she knows within her heart she has done what is wrong. God has written the law of God on her heart, even apart from the written law. Romans 2. She knows what she's doing is wrong. She knows the snickering. She knows the joking. But she wants this guy to shut up. So she wants to silence him. Because he keeps saying it over and over again. You know what it reminds me of a little bit? Have you ever seen the movie, The Princess Bride? Nobody? Okay, I may not say, go, go get the movie, you need to see it. There's this guy that's in it. Uh, I, I, I never give illustrations like this, but it just reminded me of it so much. In the movie, there's a guy named Inigo Montoya. All right, Inigo Montoya is a Spaniard, he's a swordsman. And when he's a little boy... It, it, this, a six-fingered man came and killed his father and scarred his face. So his whole life he learned nothing but sword play so that one day he would avenge his father. And one day when he finds the six-fingered man, he would go up to him and he would say, Hello, 
My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And so finally he gets the six-fingered man, and he comes up to him, and he starts saying it. It's, it's the climax of the movie, and he says, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And he goes, Hello, my name is Inigo. And, and the guy's like, Stop saying that. The six-fingered man, he goes, Stop saying it. Well, this is the point where she's come. She's like, Just shut him up. Do something about him. And so she's gone as far as she possibly can with this. And it says that she ultimately, what, she, she had a grudge with him. Uh, she hated him. You know, you've got to love John the Baptist, don't you, just real quick. You have to love this guy because he just doesn't care what anybody says. I mean, I love that. You know, I, I'm kind of a people pleaser some of the time, but I love him. He doesn't, he doesn't, how do we know he's not a people pleaser? Because he wears camel hair. All right, you can't please people and wear camel hair. He eats wild locusts dipped in honey. He tells the religious elite, you're a brood of vipers. Then the most mighty man that he knows in politics, he basically says, you're committing adultery, you're in sin, you need to get right with God, right? So this guy doesn't care about anything that anybody thinks except for God and God alone. Well, no doubt this didn't go over well with Herod. It didn't go well over with Herodias. Verse 19 says that Herodias had a grudge against him, and she wanted to put him to death. And so this ultimately puts, brings us to the second point, and that is the true disciple does not seek to suppress the truth, but to receive it in all humility. You know, I've been in the ministry now full-time for 19 years, longer than that, part-time. And I'm, I'm getting old quick. I'm like, wow, 19 years? Wow, I feel like I'm 19 years old. I know I look it. And so, um, so, so since 1994, I've been in ministry, and um, there's one thing that I have learned more than anything else in ministry, and that is this, is that people do not like to be confronted with their sin. They don't like it when I'm in the pulpit. They don't like it one-on-one. -on -one. If you're going to approach them and talk with them, and sometimes they're in willful sin, which the Bible commands us, that we must go to them and, and confront them with that sin. Uh, sometimes it's that they don't know within their sin. But let me tell you, usually it does not end well. When there are people within sin and not doing it as right, and God called. Now the Bible very clearly tells us to go, not only a preacher, but one another. We're in this together. But when we see somebody who is blatantly in sin, we approach them very carefully. Galatians 6.1 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you are spiritually, you who are spiritual, should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So he says, come with a humble heart and tell your brother for the purpose of restoring them and them repenting and being right with God and not being chastened by God, that they would be right with God once again and they would repent of that sin. But I'm telling you, it almost never ends well. The majority of the folks that I have confronted like that leave the church. They just don't want to have a hearing. Here's, here's, a, here's a common perception. Who are you to tell me? Who died and made you God? Right? Have you ever heard anything like this? Trying to help somebody? Trying to share something with somebody? They'll sit there and go, hey, listen, man, you're an idiot. All right? You think I've got problems? Let's share some of the sins that I see in your life. And they come back. They're not teachable. And then all of a sudden they're gone. Listen, my life would be much easier if I never had to confront anybody with sin. But the Bible says that you and I most must in if we love each other, must humbly come to each other. Now, before you begin to feel bad and shed tears, because I, I know you feel so sorry for me being so abused by so many mean church people, right? All right, I know that. Let me say this. Um, I'm incredibly guilty of the same thing. Incredibly guilty of the same thing. And brothers in Christ, even got some godly women who have been much older uh, throughout my Christian walk who have come and said, hey, Mike, here's the deal. 
I don't think you see this, but maybe you do see this. I don't know, but I love you. And here's some sin, I think, in your life. Here's where you're off track a little bit. Let me tell you how I respond to that. I don't respond well. I think I'm getting better at it, but there's a part of me that does the same exact thing. There's a part of me who's hurt. My conscience is, is being beaten. I sit there and I look at them and I want to tell them all the bad things that they have done. Ask them who they are to be able to judge me. I want to be able to make all kinds of excuses. Maybe they're just misinterpreting what's going on. But the truth of the matter is, almost always, even when the people don't come with the right heart and the right way, usually there's some bit of truth in what it is that they're ultimately saying. And so I, I sit back and I think about this new year and I think about how some of you have even come to me and you said, well, Brother Mike, when you preach, I've asked my friend, but as soon as they came, they left because they got offended by what you said. And let me, let me repent to you this morning with, but there's something that I have said that was offensive, that was Mike. I'm deeply sorry. And I would certainly ask you to forgive me. But I will tell you that the Word of God is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. When the word of God is preached and the truth is preached and people are not willing to submit to it, it will hurt like crazy. And people will run because they want to suppress the truth. They will hate the messenger. They want nothing to do with the messenger. So here's what I say that at least we do. You can't, you can't determine how anybody else is going to respond, but this is what I say that we do. I say here when the word of God is being preached, instead of just getting angry and being mad and going out and being ticked off because something was said from the pulpit, that you and I sit here and say, God, is there any truth in this? Why does it rub me raw? Why does it hurt my heart if that which is up? Is there any truth in this? And here's what you do. You listen to that. You receive what somebody is going to say. You determine if there's any truth in it humbly. And if there's some truth in it, here's what you do. You apply it and you thank Jesus and you thank them for sharing their heart with you. And you, you ask God to change you and to transform you. If it's not of God, you thank God anyway because it caused you to be reflective and to, to look into your heart. And it demonstrates God's humility that he placed in your heart to just listen to another brother in Christ. You know, folks, we fall many times. But a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you know, you know what the key for them is? Is that when they are confronted with the truth, they don't try to suppress it. They respond to it. This woman is clearly not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, I think, just for a moment, I think of, uh, of one of the greatest examples we see this in the Word of God is, is David. The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. Do you remember that? And I love that. You say, why is he a man of God? He's messing up everywhere. He needs a murderer. I mean, he's committed adultery. He forgets his whole family for his, for, his, for his son Absalom. He's basically wrecking the kingdom because of his love for Absalom. And so what does he have to do? Here's the great thing. It's not because, he's not a great man because he was sinless. He was a great man because he was a great repenter. He was a great repenter. When he was faced with the sin that he had done, the prophet comes to him and said, you are the man. He doesn't sit there and say, who are you to judge me? He doesn't sit there and say, oh yeah, I know some problems that you have. He sits there and he is broken. He's broken. And he repents. Well, the Bible says that there's something else that was going on here. Herodias wanted to kill John, but she wouldn't let him. So here's Herodias. She wants to push him away. Guys, we do not want to trample truth. Let me just say this last thing. You don't want to trample truth. You could try to trample truth. You could try to handle truth. You could try to run from truth. But truth endures forever because it's God's truth. The only way is to go through it and with it and submit to it. That's it. You all with me? Say amen. It's the third thing. Herodias wanted to kill John, but she was not able to. Why? Because... They liked him. Verse 20 says, 
For Herod uh, feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. Now, greatly perplexed, the word is that he was basically tormented within his soul, the stuff that he was hearing. You know what that is, right? When you feel guilty over sin that you have, at least to put it, you know that feeling that you have. And he says that he was greatly perplexed, and, and I this, and yet he heard with, he heard him gladly. What's going on with this guy? Here's what's going on. He comes, he preaches, his conscience is seared, it's, it's hard to hear, he hates it, he feels horrible about himself, he's even a little bit angry at, 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 at John for even having the audacity to be able to say it, but at the same exact time, he walks away and he kind of likes it. He takes a beating and he enjoys it. It's something that I call, I've never heard this term before and there's probably a reason why, <laughs> um, it, it's called religious, re, what is it called? <laughs> a religious... You don't laugh at me. That's, that, that just hurts my feeling. Religious masochism. And I know many believers who do the same thing week in, week out. They like to come to a church where the pastor preaches it like it is. They'll even say, my preacher preaches it like it is, brother. He'll say it all day long, man. We don't like what he says. Not all. It catches on my toes. But here's the idea. They, feel, they, they come for the beating, and they almost, in a way, they hate it, but yet they revel in it. There's a sense where they're like, yeah, man. This is it. This, this is it. And then what they do is when they leave the house of God, they actually thank the pastor for the beating. I mean, they, they do this. They leave the pastor and they're like, thanks for preaching. Man, you stepped on my toes today, preacher. Thank you. Thank you for the beating. But here's the crazy thing. They leave and nothing's ever changed. And I started wondering about that. And I'm like, how does that work? And people keep, then they come back the next week. Sin, 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 sin. They come back the next week. And what do they do? Beat me again, preacher. Don't hold back. Tell me like it is. Take my beating. And you're just beating them, man. They're just getting beaten down. They're like, oh, I like it. I like it. And here's what I think it ultimately happened. Are you all jiving with me? You guys understand? And here's what's going on here. What's going on is somehow, someway, they've been deceived in thinking that that's doing business with God. It's not. Feeling guilty over sin is not merely doing business with God. It, it's not at all. And so, so, so what you need to understand is this, is that, that when we feel, I, I've heard this excuse. I've heard people's testimonies. I've shared this before. Here's many people's testimonies. When did you get saved? Well, I got saved. Backyard Bible Club. I was six years old. I remember the day. Do you remember what happened? No, but I remember the time or the hour. Do you remember anything about what they said? No, but I remember the time or the hour. I'm glad you know the time and the hour. I know the time and the hour of the birth of my children, but that doesn't save me, right? And they sit there and they go, now, yeah, now, so tell me about your testimony. What happened? What was the evidence of salvation? Well, I really didn't show a whole lot of evidence at first. You know, I was a crack smoker for a while, then became a crack dealer. Then I began to run, run illegal arms back and forth across the borders of the United States with Mexico. And uh, I became a pimp for a period of time in New York City and, you know, then, um, you know, and prostitute for a little while. We've done all this, and I've smoked everything from hash to ash to, I wish I knew more names. I just don't know what they are. But anyway, I used to smoke all these things, and then, and then all of a sudden, man, I just, I just got right with Jesus. I just came back to Jesus. And you're like, well, how, what, how long of a period? was about 50 years. 50, 50 years? Yeah, yeah. So what made you think during that whole time that you um, were saved? Well, I felt guilty felt bad about what I was doing. And it's very interesting because that argument that people make a lot in Nassau County, the argument that they're ultimately making there for their salvation is based on the fact that they felt guilty 
And God never allows us, never allows feeling guilty to be evidence that things are right, which they're trying to do. He always allows us to feel guilt to show us that there's something that is not right. So they say, I know I'm saved because I felt guilty. God's sitting there saying, hey, and I'm not saying that the person is not saved to certain things, but the Bible has been very, very clear. What does it say? 1 John 3, 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's evident. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Does that mean that the believer in Jesus Christ is perfect? By no means. But here's the thing he can't do. He can't stay in his sin anymore. He doesn't love it anymore. He doesn't like it anymore. Does he fall? Yes, we fall. But we don't like it. We don't want it. We're not seeking it. We fall into it. And even sometimes in the flesh, there's a little bit of part of me seeking. You with me? But God changed our hearts. And he says, you don't go back to that anymore. So here's the deal. No more just feeling guilty anymore. Feeling guilty is the blessing of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that something's wrong, just like pain does in your body. When you have a pain, you're like, oh, I've got a severe pain in my head. Why don't you go to the doctor? No, I think it's nothing. Dude, you need to go check it out. When we feel the pain in our heart of conviction of sin, the Holy Spirit has granted you mercy and grace. So you know something's wrong, something's off. Something needs to be corrected. Let us not leave here. Listen, let's just do this. Let us not leave here today or any other day with us just sitting there feeling guilty, but always before we leave or when we hear the word of God to do business with God and repent of what God is convicting us of. That's what true disciples do. There's a last thing for you, and I'll, I'll try to go very quickly on this. Uh, verse 21 says, tells us that an opportunity for Herodias came when Herod on his birthday, all right, a birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. So he wanted to have a birthday and let everybody tell him how great he is. And so for when Herodias' daughter, now the Bible doesn't tell us the name of Herodias, but according to the Jewish uh, historian Josephus, he tells us that this young girl's name uh, was Salome. So Salome comes out, Herodias' daughter comes out, and she begins to dance, and she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, uh, to the girl ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half the kingdom. Now, you can imagine what kind of dance this is, right? I mean, this is, this, is not, uh, this is not square dancing. This is not one of those types of things. This is a very erotic dance, very sad, because the girl's still under the leadership of her mother, which means that she was a teenager. She wasn't referring to a man. She was in teen, at teenage years. She comes out, does an erotic dance for all these inebriated men. And what does she do? He sits there, and this guy is so pleased. They're all frothing at the mouth. And what does he do? He sits there to show off to everybody. He goes, man, you've pleased me just like these other men. You name what you want, and I'll give it to you. Even up to half my kingdom. Now, up to half the kingdom was just a, a figure of speech. He, it wasn't his kingdom to give, so he couldn't give her half the kingdom. It was just another way to say, hey, man, you name it, it's yours. It doesn't matter what the cost is. And so what does she do? She, she goes back to Mama. She's got to ask. I mean, this is the golden ticket. I want the golden ticket, right? So she's all excited. What are we going to ask? we got one wish, Mom. What is it going to be? So she runs back to Mama. And Mama, according to the Greek text here, had all this planned from the beginning. She gets her opportunity. And she says, ask for John the Baptist's head. Now, daughter, you know, nothing speaks. You know, I always think of Mom's. And the daughters in that wonderful bond, you know, bonding over baking cookies, bonding over, you know, you know, sewing, 
You know, nothing speaks of mom and daughter love like, like wanting to kill somebody, right? You know, they're there, they're wanting to kill. So she, the Bible says, immediately goes back. And what does she do? She, she asks for his head uh, on a platter. She says, I want you to give you me at once. Now, this is her adding. So you don't think that she's some kind of guilty pawn in this whole thing. She goes back and says, I, I want it, and I want it now. No, I don't want his head. I want it on a platter. Hey, we're out of feast. Might as well add, add another plate of food out there. Put it on a platter. All right, this is wicked mother, wicked, wicked king, Petrarch, technically, um, wicked mother, wicked daughter. Everybody is ultimately wicked. So what ultimately happens here? And it says the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her and immediately, see that? He feels guilty. Do you see he feels guilty? But what, what, what did we not see? A change of direction. Do you see that? He goes, oh, I feel bad about killing him, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. Why? Because he's not trying to please God. Who's he trying to please? Man. You see the difference? You see the picture of a loss of no salvation there? And so it says he, he, he went and he beheaded him in the prison, and he brought uh, his head on a platter, and he gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to his mother. Here, Mama, here, 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 I got this for you. And when the disciples heard it, they came, and they took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. It's disgusting. You know, sometimes the Bible, you know, sometimes people can make sin look good. The Bible here makes it look disgusting. And here's what we have the picture. Now, what's going on? What's the final idea here? Well, here it is. You remember how in the beginning I said that in the first part of the story, it begins by God, Jesus, sending his disciples? And then in verse 30, we'll see this next week, he's telling them to come back for his disciples. And then in between is this story. This is used, uh, theologians describe this as a Markin sandwich. Now, just stick with me just for a minute. All the way through the Word of God, I haven't really pointed out much, once or twice. But what we find through the study of Mark is he uses this literary device time and time again. He starts with one story, he inserts it with another story, and then he ends with the original story and, and, and brings a conclusion to the original story. The purpose is this. The purpose is in understanding the main story, which is the first and the end, the way to truly understand that is you have to understand what's happening in the middle. Now let's remind ourselves, what is Jesus doing? He's sending his disciples out. They're leaving in obedience to do what God has called them to do. And what happens in the middle of it? There's great suffering for those who are obedient to God. What is he telling us? Here's what he's trying to tell us as far as a true disciple. A true disciple does not only obey Jesus, he obeys at any cost. It's probably one of the most important points I can share with you this morning before we close. He obeys at any cost. I love what Kevin DeYoung says in summation with this. He says, the story tells us very clearly that the Christian life does not come with a get-out-of-jail-free card for those who obey God. You must understand something very clearly. And I don't know what kind of false theology you've been drinking from or how, what kind of messed up thinking you are, but it does not always go well for God's people. Not on this earth, it does not. You can do right. You can obey, in fact. Please understand this. That's why it says consider the cost. Because if you're obedient, you will suffer. And here's what's going to happen this year. I said this in the first service, I'll say it again. And I love you. I, I, I love you. There will be many of you who end up coming, want to talk, and here's what it's going to look like. Brother Mike, I don't, know what to, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. That's the problem. Here's the problem. And here's what I almost always ask. I said, Here's a, I could do this or I could do this. Which one should I do? And I always ask this, what does the Bible say to do? 
does the Bible say to do? And the majority of folks, here's the crazy thing, 9 out of 10, they know what the Bible says. They know it. But there's always this but part. And you know what the but is? I know this is what to do is right. But if I do it, But I do it suffer. Isn't that how all temptation and obedience to God is? And it's why people don't do what they want to do. And it's why they feel like they're exempt. It's because, hey, well, God certainly wouldn't require me to do this because the, the, the result. In order for John to do and to be what God called him to do, he got his head cut off. In order for Jesus to be in perfect submission to the Father, he died a brutal death on the cross. Eleven of the twelve disciples died miserable deaths. Why do we think there's a different view plan for us? What I'd ask you to do is this, and you determine to meet a disciple of Jesus Christ, because it will come, and it will come quickly, and some of you might be dealing with it right now. The question for you is this, what has God called me to do? I must do it. No matter the cost. God didn't change, call you to change everybody around you, win the whole world. Only God can do that. Only God can say, here's what he called you to do, to be obedient and trust him, and to be content in whatever God does with your life and my life. I don't know about you, but I can't do that on my own. I have to call for his grace and for his mercy and say, God, the same mercy that you show me every day, show me again. Because I hate suffering. My flesh hates suffering. But God, if I'm going to be obedient to what you call me to do, I know that suffering is required. That's what he wanted them to know in the story. Hey, I'm sending you out, disciples. Hey, you're coming back. But in the midst of it, understand this, just because you're being obedient to me doesn't mean that good guys always finish first. Because you're doing what is right does not mean that you can say, but God, I'm doing everything right. Why am I suffering? He says, because you're doing everything right. Here's the crazy thing to me. John, and I'll close with this, John begins to doubt before he dies about Jesus. Now that's incredible to me. Here's the man that Jesus said himself, that there has never been a man that was greater of woman than John the Baptist. Jesus, Jesus said that. I think he knows something about people, right? He's been around, okay? So he says, never been a man greater. And he's, his job is to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He's the one that when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But when he's in the midst of that suffering, guess what he begins to do? His mind gets a little bit hard. His faith begins to wane just a little bit, just a little bit. And he sends his disciples to Jesus, and they come to him and they say this. They said, John wants to know, are you the one? Or should we look for another? Do you see what suffering does oftentimes? Even for the greatest? And this is what Jesus says. He says, go back and tell them all that I have done. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. When you sit there and find yourself suffering for righteousness' sake, to do the right thing, be reminded of all that Jesus has done. His death, his burial, and resurrection. To make you right unto God. To forgive you of your sins. To cleanse you of all unrighteousness. To remove God's righteous judgment for you. And for you to become an adopted child of God. You remember what he did for you. It will strengthen you to continue to do what is right. Jesus, we come to you today.